Well, I would say the very toughest battle has always been a battle of consciousness, a battle of being able to describe convincingly what the city could be to the point that people are prepared to risk their own action and resources and kind of dive in to participate in a collaborative way to create that city. I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. 360 Degree City is brought to you by the team at Intelligent Futures. We're a team of versatile urban problem solvers, and our aim is to figure out better ways of living together. Vancouver is often cited as one of the most successful cities in the world. Today, Vancouver's inner city is filled with glass towers, townhouses, pedestrian paths, mountain views, public spaces, and sidewalk cafes. The downtown is widely praised as being livable, sustainable, and walkable. Now, this isn't to say that the city is without its challenges. Some of those include housing affordability, homelessness, and social isolation. Overall, with both successes and challenges, downtown Vancouver has changed a great deal since the 1980s. Today's episode explores how the city became the renowned place it is today. So I thought I'd talk to someone who's been at the forefront of managing and instilling change in Vancouver since the 1970s. My name is Larry Beasley. I'm um, the founding principal of Beasley & Associates. We're an international uh, planning and urban design group. Alongside Ann McAfee, Larry was the co-chief planner at the city of Vancouver from the 1990s to the early 2000s. Before that, he was a community planner with the city. And since leaving government in 2006, Larry has been practicing planning around the world. He also teaches at UBC School of Community and Regional Planning. In this episode, Larry and I discuss his experiences as the co-chief of planning in Vancouver, the concept of Vancouverism, and some of his key lessons learned over his distinguished career. On May 15th, Larry's releasing his second book called Vancouverism. In his first book, Eco Design for Cities and Suburbs, Larry and Jonathan Barnett identify principles of city building based on examples from around the world. As I looked around the world, often right at my doorstep were some very innovative things that had happened and that mm. were going on. I also noticed that no one who was really involved was telling that story. And that kind of is a Canadian truth that we go <laughs> and do stuff, you know, and then we, we kind of forget to write it down to tell the story. And a lot of times those stories get lost. Larry's latest book tells the story of Vancouverism, a term that popped up sometime in the late 1980s. Larry doesn't know who invented the word, but he does know it became popular in various urban corners around the world. I would go to the Nordic countries uh, where I was working and people would talk about, well, tell me about Vancouverism. Or I would be in Australia and people would say, tell me about Vancouverism. And I realized that the kind of things happening in our city had been seen in the, in the mindsets of other people as of a of a set that there was there was uh, something more than just some random movements going on. There was a there was a structure of rethinking the city that other people had defined. So I you I I grabbed that and that became the uh, the moniker of the book. Um, and what the book is really about, and I would say what Vancouverism is really about, 
are, are a set of principles for how a city can be more livable. And a lot of this has to do with repopulating the city from huge areas that over many, many years had become, become depopulated. Mm -hmm. How it could be more sustainable because during this period, we, we, we uh, really uh, exploded our consciousness in the world uh, through the Brundtland Report and other things of the need to be responsible to the environment and the social, all aspects of that, not just physical, but social and, and, uh, and uh, economics. Um, so how the, how the principles relate to that and how the city could be more competitive. Um, as a city whose economy at the beginning of this uh, drama was in trouble, we had to find the economy to be competitive in the world. So these principles deal with all of those dimensions through a lens which it turns out was fairly unique in cities starting in the 70s, which was through a lens of physical design and social design. Hmm. And um, not just a uh, uh, policy of land use management, not just uh, a policy of transportation uh, arrangements, um, but actually curating the city to be uh, to 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 create an experience that people would tap into and want to be a part of and creating the circumstances so that more uh, a wider range of people could be a part of that, that it was more inclusive. And those really, that, that really in a nutshell is what Vancouverism came to be uh, and what we've tried to practice. Uh, and that involves some of the basics such as, uh, and, and completely different way of looking at things, such as uh, uh, diversity of land use and mixed use as compared to this separating out uses that we saw uh, in the planning profession for you know almost 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, it includes de-emphasizing the car and re-emphasizing the active modes of movement, such as walking and cycling, but also building the transit alternatives. Um, it, 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 it includes thinking of the city as a moment-to-moment -moment host of experience. Either, um, either it is something that is uh, um, uh, embracing and, uh, and accommodating and comfortable and enjoyable and ultimately lovable, or it's brutal. And even with good policies of cities, we've found brutality. We, we are, we, you know, we are building very brutal cities. If you look at it from the day-to-day -day experience of those who live in those places. So mm -hmm. that became uh, very central to our, our, uh, the principles of the alternative city was to really make the city much more inviting, accommodating, uh, supportive than it has ever been before or, or in recent memory. And also then finally, um, making sure that the city, uh, is as available to as many people as possible in as positive a way as possible. So mm -hmm. we, um, we consolidated our um, focus on social housing. We, uh, we really consolidated our focus on facilities for the, the, the disenfranchised and others to try to broaden the 
the the responsibilities of the city and not just have the city be a vehicle through which a few exploit everyone else. And so that's 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 very important to the uh, to the whole theme of Vancouverism as well. Now, I have to say, you never quite get as far as you want to get on this topic because we're in a free market society and it has its own drama. And I have to also say that looking back, what we there are some aspects we actually did not realize were going to happen. We didn't realize that our city. Vancouver would become so popular and so much a part of a world culture that we would have this almost endless in in migration and in and demand, which has had an effect ultimately of making the city as it's gentrified somewhat less available to everyone that we had always wanted. Mm-hmm. So, but that so that affordability issue is right at the top of our current agenda. But going back. 20 years or so, 25 years or so, um, that that really didn't dawn on us that it would happen. We we were really focused on low-income folks, people who had been totally disenfranchised, um, and thought the middle and, and other people in society, middle-income people and other people in society would be able to look after themselves. We now know that's not true. We could talk about that. Mm-hmm. But that critique, which I am – I'm – among the biggest critics today, does not deny the principle that we were uh, pursuing more than most other cities at, at that time, which was inclusiveness. Right. Make sure the city was for everyone. Right. One one of the things I wanted to to chat with you first about is, um, so so I think you did a beautiful job of uh, encapsulating all the elements in the in the fact that Vancouverism isn't uh, uh, a single solution. Uh, it's a suite of mindsets and tactics. Um, what, what were some of the, but, but the city building endeavor is not for, uh, the faint of heart. Uh, what, what were some of the toughest battles along the way that you had to fight to, uh, to realize some of these, these achievements? Well, I would say the very toughest battle has always been a battle of consciousness, a battle of, of being able to describe convincingly what the city could be to the point that people are prepared to risk their own action and resources and kind of dive in to participate in a collaborative way to create that city. I remember a time, for example, when we would even use words like street wall and politicians would go, well, you can't use street wall. That's a word no one can use. I mean, no one knows what that means. Or you would talk about um, a housing for low-income people and say, oh, you know, that's not really very popular. Or many, many ideas of the future city that just were not on people's wavelengths. And the world, in a free society the way we live, the world's skeptical. And so I would say the hardest overall battle that we um, that we had to dive into at 100 percent was that battle of raising consciousness. We did that in part through uh, through uh, an ethos of our planning, which was that we want we were out talking to citizens every day of the year, well, except for Christmas and Boxing Day, every day of the year. And we were not just talking when we wanted to, them to give us some advice. We were talking in all kinds of formats just about the interesting issues of the growth and 
evolution and transformation of your city. We had some natural interest because the city was economically in trouble and was on the verge of a of we could tell some sort of transformation. So there was a natural uh, interest in that. But also we built that. We built it. We built it. We went out and 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 met with people on their turf in their ways, using lots of interesting techniques. And through that, we actually built something which was the breakthrough, which was we built a kind of a collective connoisseurship of cities. So if you talk to people in Vancouver, even today, now this is this is now uh, over a decade uh, or more, or two decades since we were in the height of this, you will find often a consciousness for what are good cities and how cities need to work that I don't find in many other cities. So that was a breakthrough. It, it, it was a difficult time though. Um, I remember early on, a lot of us thinking, you know, maybe we've got it wrong. Maybe these ideas that we've learned from the new urbanism and from experience elsewhere um, are not where people want to go. It's not the kind of city people want. Maybe this whole notion that a city should be built around positive experience is a luxury that cities, uh, you know, are not prepared to pay for. Um, and But what we found um, – was that once we broke through that consciousness, we started building constituencies of people who not only agreed with us, but but passionately agreed with us, which led to an interesting uh, dialectic in the end, which was that um, our vision of the city became a common vision among the average person, among politicians, among organizations, such that Really, it was no longer even debated in political elections. There was usually most of the parties would say, we kind of like what the is being unfolded by our planning department, and they would go on to the other issues of the day. Now, that's not to say that there weren't tons of debates and discussions and arguments. Sure. And, you know, all of that. Um, that's a part of the regular discourse of any city, and particularly one that's trying to change. But it is to say that we started dealing from very, very similar principles and from some sense of aligned interests. So that's, and, and would you, would you relate that all the way back to the, your description of um, life in the planning department in the seventies, the storefronts and the, the, you're um, sitting with folks, like you say, 363 oh, yeah. days a year. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, you know what we were reinventing for, for the profession, and not just us here, people in many parts of the, of, uh, the world, Canada being a, a, a really important part of this, uh, is we were building a new culture of how to do planning that no longer was technocratic, that no longer was expert-based, that no longer was, uh, was uh, an agency of the powers that be, but rather that was populist, that was um, inclusive, and, um, and that was really trying to speak to people in their own language. So that happened at a neighborhood level. Well, you can imagine when people like myself then took on greater responsibilities, we weren't going to leave that behind. It's an ethos. It was a whole culture of how to do planning that um, 
that changed our profession. Mm-hmm. And I think what you describe is is uh, so important to uh, build a culture, uh, an urban culture, uh, particularly, you know, Canada is a pretty young place that doesn't have a uh, centuries and centuries of living in cities together. So I think it's that that much more important. I think the danger that folks uh, get into is when they do, just as you described, we'll come talk to you or more likely you come talk to us about this one pre-described issue and then you won't hear from us for two or three years until something else comes up and then we'll do the same thing. And that, that, you know, at worst breeds mistrust. Um, but it certainly doesn't build a dialogue, a shared understanding of the city over time. And I think that's, that's one of the, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause that's one of the most uh, exciting things that I've observed one province over, uh, about the, the Vancouver experience. It is, it, it was very important for us to, um, to simply have a good, a good and ongoing, conversation with as many people as possible mm-hmm. uh, and um, and and I think it has it has uh, borne fruit for our city our whole culture it 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 really is a city that um, well people get mad when they see it going the wrong way because actually they understand what the right way is I don't have to tell them at all it's like mm-hmm. beside the point for me telling them Mm-hmm. But there's another aspect, too, and that is and this is something we learned early on. And that is when you go to talk to someone about a particular issue, all they can really focus on is how to win their position. Yep. That's what it's about. So even the most, you know, broad thinking people I've watched, when you come and let's talk about a particular issue, I'm going to win that issue. I'm going to win my point. I'm going to win my position. But when you talk to people about their ideas of cities if you can if you can get people into a more relaxed conversation then they explore all kinds of things they are very happy to go into areas they never thought about and then you start talking about interests not positions and you can get at interest and you can have a wonderful exploration i remember a politician one of our famous mayors saying to me one time um, you know don't come to me in one project and ask me to include daycare. Come to me with a policy on daycare that's been talked about all over the city with all kinds of people. I'll adopt it. And then it's easy for me to apply it when that one project comes up. Mm-hmm. And I think that was very uh, indicative of, of what we were trying to do, which was, uh, um, which was start with a broad interest-based conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really contextualizes the local intervention or project or solution when you can do that in a in a broad sense because all those big grand visions have to get built some places, but the yeah. the context of it then then takes on a different meaning. Yeah, for sure. And, and and I've always I've always fundamentally believed in the innate intelligence of the community. Yep. If they have information, if they've been able to work through in their own minds, the implications of things, if they have been able to put it in a context that perhaps is bigger than their momentary interest. Yeah. Uh, the community is better at doing that than most governments, frankly. Yep. Yep. For sure. For sure. And that's, and that's, and that's, uh, I think for, for professionals, particularly like what, what you've described is how you practice 
and your department practiced, um, that requires a, a, a bit of a shift uh, in self-reflection for the professionals involved in that, right? Because it's pretty easy to show up at one community meeting. It's not easy, but <laughs> it's, it's just, you know, you're the expert and here's how it is. Here's my technical expertise. Then, I, you know, as, a, as an individual professional, that gives me some something to stand on. But if that starts to get morphed, doesn't it, it's just a different interpretation of expertise. You know, community members are experts in the life of the community. And that then makes the professional expertise that much more interesting to intersect with if you approach it from that way. That's right. Because um, the one thing I never bought into through all those years was that planners were just choreographers or conveners. I've always felt that planners, I mean, my goodness, uh, our society sends us to school for years and years, and you can't really do much for until you've had a lot of experience, and then you're not even trusted for five or seven years to do anything. <laughs> um, so I've always felt that we, we are the custodians of some special knowledge about cities and how they work and how they don't work and how they might work, and we're also paying attention to new ideas and innovations that are happening. Yeah. Uh, and so we have our own contribution to make, but it's not a contribution that can ever be made in contradiction to the wa wide uh, perception and wide public opinion. The fact is, and the saving grace of, of, um, of both our profession and modern cities, in my opinion, is that we are living, most of us are living within free democracies. So, mm -hmm. uh, so we all have a voice and, and it's just planners in part have to help, have to help raise those voices that are, that are not naturally coming forward. But also planners have to contribute their own best knowledge. And, you know, you have to have courage that your knowledge is compelling in its truth yep. uh, in order as you push it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And you, you mentioned uh, free, free democracies and earlier you mentioned free markets. Um, wondering if you could uh, talk about your experiences working with uh, the development industry um, in your, in your time and, and how you've pushed them. Cause one of the things I understood um, was that that was different about the Vancouver approach was this collaborative approach with the development industry itself, where I think a lot of, um, a lot of communities have the sit back, the regular, just the strict regulator approach. I will sit back and you present me with something that I will evaluate versus let's build something together. Can you maybe describe what, what that was like? I would start by identifying, uh, one of the real root inventors of an alternative way of looking at your regulatory framework. And that was Ray Spaxman, who was the director of planning before me, a great intellect and a and a and a, a great um, visionary for, for cities, but also a very good organizer. And uh, what Ray felt, and what was then I learned, and others learned from him, and we were able to adopt, was that your regulatory system must be more than just policing. Your regulatory system has to uh, engender and motivate, actively motivate um, uh, the vision of the city that you want. That, that even well-meaning developers who are one of the great actors to change the city, and even other well-meaning leaders who are, have some power to shape that change, um, 
are not automatically going to go in the same direction. And the more motivation, the more incentivization, the more of that that you can do, the better. And so Ray helped put in place, and then my generation really consolidated and, and polished it to, to a fine science, was a regulatory system that is uh, transactive. Well, it's discretionary, number one. In other mm -hmm. words, it has a lot of possibilities and choices rather than a simple rule. And it's transactional, which is to say it's open for all kinds of discussions about the future, and it adjudicates through involving a lot of people in that decision. So there's not a policeman called the director of planning. There is a community re peer review arrangement, a community review arrangement that helps you come to a conclusion. Ironically, in Vancouver's case, a conclusion that in most cases is not even done at the floor of the city council. It's done in, a, in the context of officials who are real experts in what they do and what they know, um, but who are acting in a transparent way, which means they have to engage all the other people in society with them to make those decisions. So what our system became and is still is, um, is, a, is a, it's a, it's a system where you negotiate what is approved based on interests you try to broker those interests. You try to balance those interests uh, through the system. The planner has to be a broker and a balancer. Um, and then you take a decision. And you have to worry about it, the efficiency of that and all of the equities of that and the transparency of that and everything. But you insist on the complexity of a process because the city is a complex thing and needs all of the different inputs in order to get the best decisions. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's really what our system is all about. There's one other factor I would just notice mm -hmm. is that we discovered that there is extraordinary wealth being engendered by the actual process of, of development and change. And above and beyond very good profitability for a developer there is often great wealth that can be tapped into for the public side of the equation. In modern cities, no developer can do it alone. No city can do it alone. They have to collaborate. The problem we had in the past was that the public side had no resources. And so it was hard to collaborate. And I'm sure as a planner, you felt frustrated from time to do something need to happen on your side of the equation. There was no money to do it. And so what we discovered is that as you intensify and diversify your city, you create um, focal points of incredible wealth uh, that comes right into the equation that's brand new wealth. And you can tap some of that wealth, which then allows you to invest it in a way that's parallel to the private investor and private investment, the developer. And so what that builds is a system where many developers uh, first is we tend to demonize developers. Mm -hmm. but you build a system where it's no longer a question of demonizing or supporting that developers are by and large working from their own interests, but their interest is parallel to the public interest and the city interest. And then the city is paralleling its interests with the developer because also the developer is the one who makes change. The city talks about it, regulates it, but doesn't make it. Right. And so... 
that that division of labor is a magic moment. Uh, and if and if everyone's contributing to it, then it becomes a really city building, uh, um, a tool for city building. I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City. And today I'm talking with Larry Beasley about Vancouverism. Can you maybe talk about, in a, in a broad sense, for folks that maybe aren't, aren't as familiar with it, uh, why density is important for a city? And then uh, what needs to accompany that density uh, so that you don't get sort of uh, the negative stereotype that people might think of density right off the hop? So let me start by saying that, um, and I'm going to come to your question, but let me start by saying that intensification and focusing of cities is not just a question of core cities versus the suburbs. But it's also a question within suburbs themselves of having focal points of diversity and interest and supports and all of those things that help to structure the whole city region. Because we now, all of us live, most of us live in these huge city regions. What happens as you focus your city, um, as you bring things a little closer together, as you put um, more things together in smaller uh, in smaller uh, geographies, is that you begin to set off many very interesting um, uh, results. Number one is that people can actually get out of cars and they can start moving around on foot and by transit and, and cycling and skateboards and whatever else they want to do. And there are many more technologies that are going to be in the fore in the next few years. The result of which is they save money it's healthier, et cetera. Second thing is that um, we know that as people come closer together face-to-face, less alienation, less separation in those private vehicles and those private places, that it engenders society and culture and innovation and, uh, and, and mutual assistance and, and people learning to coexist together and all those kind of positive things. And then thirdly, cities have learned that if you can cluster, uh, you can deliver services better, uh, you can deliver services cheaper, which means that taxpayers don't have to pay quite as many taxes. And then environmentalists have learned that if you can cluster development, intensify and diversify development, then you take pressure off the green urban fringe and off of our natural environment. Why do people hate it? (laughs) Because we've done a terrible job of it. And the negative side of it is you can feel crowded. You can feel that your, uh, your, not only your privacy is, is, uh, is not there, but, um, all all the, your sense of, of self-direction, your sense of self-control is not as complete. So, and it simply was, has been presented as such an ugly reality. Such a brutality, the, you know, the old concrete, you know, image of the city with no green, no trees, no nothing. In, you know, tall buildings that are anonymous at the ground, all those kind of negative, negative images that you, you know, the movies have shown us. Well, what we discovered in Vancouver was that we had to take that density. You know, we had a, we were kind of lucky in the sense that we, we're developing on a peninsula, so we have a lot of extra land. So we had to use land more intensely. But then we we had to take that density and we had to humanize it. We call it taming density. We had to make it 
really attractive, so the architecture had to be better. We had to embellish the public environment so that there are trees and landscape. It's mostly a green public environment. We had to moderate the impact of big, tall buildings with, with landscape and gardens and all that. We had to just build in all kinds of services that people uh, uh, needed and that actually they couldn't enjoy in the suburbs as easily because it's so expensive to deliver them. Well, we had to deliver all of those things. We had to rethink the whole high density living experience. And we had to do it by going and talking to consumers and finding out was what was important to them, not what was important to us uh, over a period of time. And that led to so many wonderful new kinds of things which you see in Vancouver, for example, uh, row houses. You see thousands of row houses along our streets, which, and that's because a lot of people said, you know, I like a front door. I want direct access to my hmm. unit. I don't want to get lost in a tower somewhere. I don't like heights. I'm afraid of heights. I have a dog. I want my dog to be able to walk, you know, and I have children. I want them to play outside, that kind of thing. And you, and you see wonderful uh, courtyards, uh, these beautiful, beautiful, lovely landscape courtyards where children can play very safely. You know, the, all the issues of safety and security, which are endemic to the harsh, brutal city, inner city, dense city, are, are resolved by these lovely courtyards. Uh, you see uh, different densities for different kinds of uses. Um, you, you, and, and that's a, a lovely thing because People, even if they like the idea of multiple living, don't necessarily want to live in the tallest building and, mm -hmm. you know, that. Um, so you began to see many, many features that were not on the agenda of the planning profession uh, uh, previously. Previously, it's, you know, I'll give you your density, I'll give you your height, and it's up to you. Uh, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, for many reasons... The up to you was leading to this brutality, which um, which has turned most people against density. So um, that's what we had to do. We had to tame that density. We had to notice that there are certain synergies that are wonderful together. You know, having a, a coffee shop within two or three minutes walk and a little corner store and all those kind of things. But there are also associations that don't work together very well. Um, uh, uh, some very loud restaurants don't go well with uh, housing above and, and we had to start managing those negative uh, impacts uh, as well as the positive impacts. We had to deal with noise. We had to deal with privacy. We had to deal with people's sense of safety and security. All of those kind of things came into play as we tamed the density. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you um, uh, now are working in places as diverse as Dallas and Moscow and Abu Dhabi and the countless others, I'm sure. Uh, what, what's most exciting to you as you're applying uh, your Vancouverism lessons uh, in other corners of the world? Well, besides the fact that at a certain age, the biggest objective you can have as a living person is to continue to learn uh, and continue to be fascinated with life. Besides that fact, what I found really wonderful is that the, it seems that the basic principles of modern city building are similar around the world. And that gives me great faith that as we, as we, uh, um, propagate those 
principles and uh, and many many thousands of us are doing that around the world in this frenetic building of cities that's going on as as the entire human race becomes urbanized that there are some basic principles we can pretty much depend on but the other side of that fascination is that it has amazed me at how different the results are actually on the ground it's amazed me how those principles get reshaped by the the host culture, the indigenous culture of wherever I'm working. Um, and so the results are not homogenizing cities in the world. Hopefully they are leading to more fascination, more diversity, more choices uh, for people. Um, you know, when we, when we, um, uh, we're dealing with uh, urbanization in Abu Dhabi, the whole Islamic culture and whole Islamic ethos brought uh, a, a kind of structuring to the city, even with the same principles, that um, that was completely different than what would happen in Vancouver, which is why we made it a in principle proposition that we wouldn't just import Vancouverism to um, to Abu Dhabi or to Dallas or to Moscow, um, those principles were there absolutely. But my goodness, were they ever different? Mm -hmm. uh, wonderful. Okay, I'm, I'm mindful of the uh, the the time and and uh, appreciative of of your gener generosity. Um, so we'll maybe uh, wrap up with the uh, question that we ask everybody on the podcast and. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll ask you uh, uh, something that's not Vancouver, but can you tell me a, a city that you love and why you love it? Well, without hesitation uh, or any debate, to me, the, the most um, extraordinary city on the planet is Paris. Hmm. And the reason for that is that it has such amazing humanity. Mm -hmm. It has uh, amazing artfulness. It has unbelievable diversity, even in the face of a culture which can be quite um, chauvinistic. Um, it has built a, um, a uh, over many generations and thousands of contributors a graciousness uh, that that really does bring out the best in human beings and avoid some of the worst. It has its moments of explosion when people you know when people rebel and it's it's hosted some of the you know most dramatic rebellions in the history of human beings um but it's day-to-day -day truth is a place of amazing livability amazing innovation uh amazing humanity um and um and extraordinary beauty it was an honor to talk to Larry and understand his experiences and perspectives on city building. If you're interested in learning more about Larry's point of view about the story and critiques of Vancouverism, you can pre-order his upcoming book. The link is in our show notes. His book will be out on May 15th. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.